New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. The dire problems we're facing in the 21st century, whether it's a personal loss such as the death of a loved one, or a global one such as climate change and the loss of places that are dear to our hearts, plus the animals and plants that used to thrive among us, such challenges demand a new kind of heroism. The truth is we can't confront any emergency, whether it's personal, local, or global, by hoping and praying that the problem will go away or waiting for someone else to act. Our guest today suggests that we not deny our heartbreak. Rather, we must give expression to our grief through our tears, creative work, and sharing our lives and stories with others. This is how we soften that grief and allow compassion and gratitude to infiltrate our being. By opening up to the possibility of wonder from surprising sources, we recognize that even in the bleakest times, beauty is possible. Although beauty can't permanently replace our losses and sorrow, it can break through the walls of powerlessness and melt despair. This is a subject we'll be exploring today with our guest, Trebby Johnson. Trebby Johnson is the founder and director of the global community Radical Joy for Hard Times and she's devoted to finding and making beauty in hurt places. She has camped alone in the Arctic wilderness, studied classical Indian dance, worked as an artist model, and has been a street sweeper in an English village. She's also an award-winning multimedia producer. She's led wilderness rites of passage and contemplative journeys in clear-cut forests, Ground Zero in New York, in EPA's toxic Superfund sites, the Sahara Desert, and other places. She's the author of several books, including Radical Joy for Hard Times, Finding Meaning and Making Beauty in Earth's Broken Places, and Fierce Consciousness, Surviving the Sorrows of Earth and Self. 
Join us for the next hour as we explore how to press on with joy, beauty, and meaning in the face of great challenges, both personal and global, with our guest, Trebby Johnson. I'm speaking with Trebby from her home by remote connection. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Trebby, welcome. Thank you so much, Justine. It is truly an honor to be here with you. Well, it's my honor to have you and to be talking about this really most precious subject that's just up for all of us for whatever, whether it's a personal loss or the global loss, um, it's all up. And I would love for you to start off by telling us the moment. I know that you have lost just a dear, dear person in your life, Andy. He has passed on. And it, it was a moment when you walked outside of the hospice facility. He had just died. And if you can describe that moment for us. Yes, it's it was really one of those life transformative moments. Um, my husband died a little over three years ago. He'd had bladder cancer, and he hadn't really been feeling ill until about the last six weeks of his life. He was in a hospice facility near Scranton, Pennsylvania, for about two two days and, and a half. And after he died, I was with him when he died, even though it was during the time of COVID. I was actually able to be with him the entire time in the hospice to hold his hand um, and, and to stay there on the couch in his room. And he died. And um, I, I kissed him goodbye. I called his three grown children. I called three of our friends. And then I started packing up my stuff to go outside. And I walked out of the hospice facility. It was about midnight. It was August. It was hot. And when I came out the door, the air all around this little facility, which was in, in, in a wooded area, it was filled with the song of Katie Dids, which I know some people don't know what they are. They're, they're insects and they make sounds with their wings and they go, they say, Katie did, Katie did, Katie did. It was a 360-degree ring of these insects. And I was so stunned. I just put down the bags and listened to them because it was, for me, it was such affirmation that life just has to continue, that the world does not stop, even though I am in the worst possible hour of my life, possibly, but the world doesn't stop and these insects have something to do and they have life to give and they're going to give it. And so I just listened and then I put my palms together and I bowed to them and then I picked up my bags and went to the car. But it was such a gift. It was such a, it was beauty in hard times. I was reminded of when my own dear husband, Michael, died and a similar thing happened after saying goodbye and he had already died and all of that. Everything that you describe, I walked outside and for me, it was the crows. 
Uh, and they were flying around and cawing. And I thought, ah, yeah, life is still happening. And it's like this paradox. I mean, I'm feeling just extraordinary grief. And then there's this life. And it reminds me, Trebby, of some years ago, we did an interview with um, Michael Mead, who's a mythologist and storyteller. And he told, because you said, you know, the, the life doesn't end. He told the story. It was a Native American story about the old woman in the cave. And she's weaving this tapestry of the world. And she she's working on it. It's just beautiful. It's really long. And she has to do lots of work to do it. But she gets up to go to stir the soup. And when she gets up, the black dog who's been asleep gets up and he unravels all that she has knitted together. And the point of the story is she goes back and she sits down without despairing and just picks up her needles again and and conceives even a better weaving and starts to weave again. Beautiful. I encourage our listeners to go find that program or go to Michael Mead's website and find him telling the story because he's a massive storyteller. But it's like that, that you write about the story goes on. It doesn't, it, the earth may rearrange, but it goes on. The story does not end in any comment on that. Well, yes. And, and that's what's, I think is so wonderful about that moment. And I did a book tour after Fierce Consciousness was published. I drove 9,800 miles around the country and went in 25 of my friends did a, a book events for me. And I told that story a lot, maybe even at all of them, because it was so moving to me. And at one of them, a woman said, well, maybe they were singing for you. And I said, they weren't. <laughs> and that's the wonder of it. You know, they don't, they didn't care at all about me. And, and that's the wonder of it, that the world just goes on. And and what's so inspiring to me about the natural world, but also about human beings in times of of sorrow and, and, and major catastrophe is that there is just this life force, um, you know, that like Dylan Thomas spoke about it as the green fuse, you know, that just it, it rises up through us and, and through insects and trees and plants and polar bears and people whose houses have been destroyed by fire and flood. And there is some kind of life force that just makes us keep going. And I find it inspiring. I find it incredibly inspiring. And you also talk about beauty as if we can pause long enough like you did outside that hospice, if we pause long enough to be infused with that beauty, something is transformed. Yeah, and I believe, I mean, in my experience is that the more open I am to beauty, the more it comes. Yeah. 
Like it's everywhere. And if and and what was interesting to me is so I I brought that first load of stuff out to the car, and then I went back inside the hospice, and I said to the woman at the desk, "Have you heard those Katie dids?" And she said, no, (laughs) I mean, that's where she works. She was there all the time. And I do think that somehow that it is often in the times when we are most broken and vulnerable, that that beauty comes through. And Leonard Cohen says it, there, there is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Rumi said it, you know, there is something about being broken that, allows beauty, kindness, generosity to kind of permeate and dive through that narrow little crack and suffuse us. And we have to be open to seeing it. And I I would imagine what you're describing is that it's a moment of extraordinary vulnerability. If we truly you talk about descending into our grief rather than ascending and transforming and going up and so forth, but just to get down with it. I want to talk more about that in just one moment because uh, I want to go into this in more depth. I'm here with Trebby Johnson, and she's the author of Fierce Consciousness, Surviving the Sorrows of Earth and Self. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, trebbyjohnson.com. T-R-E-B as in boy, T-R-E-B-B-E, johnson.com. That's trebbyjohnson.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Trebby Johnson, and we're talking about grief. We're talking about the rearrangement of our lives personally when there's grief that we're feeling, or globally when we can feel the pressures of of all the change that's going on due to climate change and other things. In that grief, one of the things that you talk about, Trebby, is not going into disbelieving 
And that's hard. That's hard because we don't want to accept that this is really happening. The earth is rearranging itself and it's our fault that it's happening and other pressures that are moving to change it. And it feels so remote in some ways because we we don't see the glaciers melting. Most of us don't actually experience that. We experience other things, though. So tell us, what about disbelieving? Well, I started to think about that. I write about this in Fierce Consciousness. I started to think about disbelieving when I was a senior in high school, and we were reading Camus' book, The Plague. It became very relevant, that book did, as we went through the pandemic. But um, but he talks about how people disbelieved in the plague. That's where I got the word. You know, they they thought that they had plenty of time to make plans. They could have reunions with their family. They could have vacations. And um, and I came from a an alcoholic family. My father was an alcoholic. And when he got drunk, he would hit my mother quite brutally. And then the next morning he would sober up and he would tell everybody, he would tell us all that he was never going to do that again. And my mother my mother seemed to believe him, and I began to believe that that was wrong. You know, my mother disbelieved in the severity of what was happening. So I kind of grew up with that idea that it's it's really, really important to face the bad stuff. Um, you know, it, like if you get a bad medical diagnosis, rather than saying that it's maybe there's a mistake, like face it, face climate change. And Personally, I think I've gone a little bit oh, kind of over the top with that, um, with wanting to think, just think too much about everything that was going on. At the same time as feeling beauty, I must say. And um, and there is a tendency to disbelieve in the severity of climate change. And um, I recently read this book by Kim Stanley Robinson, Ministry of the Future. It takes place about 40 years in the future. And he says it's very hard for people to to deal with something that is unprecedented. Climate change is unprecedented. So it's not strange that we can't find a way to deal with it. And one of the things that I've learned over the last couple of years is we can't constantly face climate change. We have to, in a way, back off from our own willingness to believe and not disbelieve, but just kind of give ourselves a break and not be 100% conscious of it all the time because it's just too much. So, but the disbelief is it's probably not as bad as they say. Maybe, maybe the earth will in her, in her wonderful evolutionary way, take care of things. Maybe scientists will come up with a solution. Maybe God will fix things. But meanwhile, we can't disbelieve. Climate change is real. It's having effects. It's affecting everything. I mean, it's affecting fires, floods. Here in New York State, we're having really fierce winds and heavy, heavy downpours of rain. So as long as we're disbelieving, we can't take action. Once we say to ourselves, okay, this is real, whatever it is, now what? Now it's time to figure out what the first step is. 
Yeah, I I hear you. I hear you. And I I think about taking action. I just recently saw some an announcement I from somewhere. I I don't remember where it came up and I saw Jane Fonda just a couple of years ago got arrested <laughs> again. She's in her 80s and she's yeah. still active at a climate change protest in Washington, D.C. And there was a picture of her with her hands above her head and her wrists uh, in handcuffs uh, once more. And that's part of it is, okay, even if it's not a big thing, we can do small things. We can get together with our neighbors. I mean, I know that you talk about how it's important that we not go through this alone. And we, I'd love for you to say something about that. Well, I think one of the things that climate change has allowed is that it's becoming more acceptable to say that you're feeling grief, despair, anxiety, et cetera, about the state of the earth. You know, a few a few years ago, not that long ago, if people cried because a forest was cut down or a great tree, like the one we were talking about before we started the program, that in England, um, you were told that you were anthropomorphizing or you were a tree hugger. And scientists are always very careful to not put their emotions in if they were trying to save a canyon or an insect or a fish or whatever, because then that would mean they were unprofessional. But I think that's changing. I think we are becoming more allowed to feel grief for the state of the earth because we are having to acknowledge that it's taking place all around us. I'm reminded as you're speaking about that, about, uh, let's say, a place, a beloved place. And there's a story you tell in the book about a young woman who had went to a particular forest and it was a spiritual journey for her each each time she went there. The trees themselves were like guardians of her spirit in in some way. And and then it got clear cut. And and tell the story of that and and the essay she wrote and what happened. Yeah, that's such a shocking story. She um, she was in high school and the trees blew down. I think they blew down in a storm. And um, she wrote an essay about it. And the teacher read her essay aloud to the class. But what she realized when he finished reading it was that he didn't read her essay to praise it. It was to criticize her for feeling emotion about a forest, for projecting what he said was uh, was a human emotion onto a forest. Um, well, it, that's not true. You know, she was indeed grieving the forest. And of course, she was very uh, hurt by that. Um, and she ended up, she, it's a happy ending. She ended up going to Yale Divinity School. And one of her focuses was calling attention to hurt places. Um, but uh, But we do feel grief for the loss of nature. And I I mean, to me, it's just so important to acknowledge that this grief is real, that we do mind when 
when birds are killed by by poisons, when trees are cut down, when rivers are polluted, um, and when homes are destroyed by violent weather, it's more than just the loss of a home that people mind. It's the landscape. It's the place. It's the ground that you stand on. Um, it's many, many things, and grief is appropriate. And even it could be covered by a, a shopping mall. You know? Absolutely. <laughs> Oil drilling, coal mining, all kinds of things. It's not just climate change. Well, I, I'm also reminded, too, that when you have done your work about beauty and hurt places, you have gone to some places. There was one in particular that I call to mind. It was super fun site, a really terribly toxic site uh, with some sort of chemical company. And there were, you notice when, well, first of all, why did you go there and what was your intention and what did you see next to it? Well, in, in doing and going, it was like all covered with barbed wire fence and do not enter and all of that. But next to the property were nesting birds. Oh, yes. Yeah, I think that was um, the helico plant in California. Right, exactly. That's in it. Oxnard. And it wasn't I who went there. It was, uh, it was this event that my organization, Radical Joy for Hard Times, is, does every year in June called the Global Earth Exchange, where it's like exchanging gifts with the earth. And um, five or six people went to this helico site, which um, it was a con con some kind of chemical processing plant. And right next door to it was a, um, a wildlife preserve. And there were ducks and geese flying in and out and landing and building nests. And, you know, right next door to it is this highly toxic site. And um, and what we do with the Global Earth Exchange is, is go to these hurt places, share the stories about what they mean to us, and um, and then make and get to know them as they are now, both in their beauty and their ugliness, and then um, and then make beauty for them make a simple gift of beauty for them. And what is the purpose of making that gift of beauty? What what does it do uh, for the place and for the person who's gifting it? Thank you for asking that. It's really it's really quite an extraordinary mystery. Um in the in this whole event you know, that I was just describing, it's like five, it has five suggested steps. They're all suggested except the first and the last. The first one is go to a hurt place. In other words, don't just think about it and meditate on it. And the last one is make a gift of beauty. And there is something about just taking the materials that are there at the site, whether it's barbed wire fencing or, or a leaves, sticks, sometimes trash that you later take out, feathers that are on the ground, and making a gift for that place out of this materials. And on that particular event, we suggest making a bird because birds are universal and everybody knows how to make a bird. Um, there's something about translating or transferring 
sorrow about what a place is going through into saying, into making a gift. And the thing that's relevant about using the materials that are there is a way of acknowledging that all the elements to reawaken beauty in that place are already there. We don't have to haul in a lot of stuff. You know, we don't, we don't need sage and ribbons and flowers from the florist and all that. There's something transformative about that. And I don't understand it at all, but people so often say to us after doing this that they fall in love with a place that they didn't even really want to go to in the beginning. I love that. Thank you. I'm here with Trevi Johnson, and she is the author of Fierce Consciousness, Surviving the Sorrows of Earth and Self. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Trevi Johnson, and she is the author of Fierce Consciousness, Surviving the Sorrows of Earth and Self. And we're talking about bearing witness in some ways of these hurt places. And I really love the idea, Trevi, of bearing witness and the importance of that. It's an act unto itself that has power. Mm-hmm. And I'd, I'd love for you to describe what that is and how it has power and why it's important for us to not turn our heads away, but to look squarely at it and bear witness. Yes, thank you. It's um, it's it's connected in a way with, with, act, with the kind of action that we were talking about earlier. I mean, because not all action has to be big action. Not all action has to be about mobilizing and protesting and going out into the streets. In fact, that's, that's super important, but small actions are also important. And along the lines of refusing to disbelieve, which we also talked about a little bit earlier, um, this idea of bearing witness is a way of saying, I want to face, I am willing to face. I might not want to. I am willing to face what's broken. I am willing to face what's toxic. I am willing to face what's ugly. And that was really part of the essence of Radical Joy for Hard Times. Uh, the book I wrote, Radical Joy for Hard Times, It's um, it has to do with acknowledging how much we love our places and how much grief we feel when something happens to them. And by bearing witness we simply are willing to go and face what's happening. It seems like a very small thing um, just to simply go and look and listen and face it. And yet it's something that a lot of people avoid because they are afraid that if they do go and face a place that they love that's been hurt, 
Um, and it, it doesn't necessarily need to be in the natural world. It could be uh, like a street corner in St. Louis where a young boy was murdered by a white police, a young black boy was murdered by a white policeman. You know, it could be a place where there was a car crash and people lost their lives. Any kind of wounded place, there's this sense of if I go there, I'll be overwhelmed with grief. And yet that's really not what happens. There may be the, probably the the sense of, of, of reluctance is stronger before we actually go than when we get there. And I have found in my life that this work of going to hurt places and facing them, even if I don't do anything else, it enables me to face other hard times in my life. So I think that story I told about hearing the Katie dids right after my husband died, I think that part of my ability to do that was because I've been going to wounded places all these years and not wanting to walk away from them. Um, even if I didn't want to face something, knowing I need to face this, I need to bear witness to this, whatever it is, it makes us more open to both the the sorrow of the world, but also the beauty of the world. I'm reminded of, as you were speaking about that, of driving where I was driving um, Ruth that I drive often. And one day there was a bicycle that appeared uh, right there at the stoplight. And it was decorated with flowers all over it. And I felt, I felt like, oh, someone died here. Someone died here. And then someone took the time to just honor it. And then we all could feel that. I, even as I describe it, I feel the, that death of, of someone I didn't even know, but I can feel it in my heart. Yeah. Even in this moment, it's yeah. quite amazing. When we do acknowledge that in, in talking about how different teachers appear to us, in that case, if the teacher was somebody took the time to acknowledge it. That's a teacher for me. But you, I think you describe something that happened for you that became a teacher. And it was when you were getting on a subway uh, car and something happened. Do, do you recall that particular story? Yes, yes. I, it was when I was living in New York City, and I was in a subway station one morning, very crowded. It was rush hour, and um, everybody was positioned to push onto the train when it came. And there was a man, probably homeless, you know, kind of pretty scruffy looking, not very well-kempt, you know, scraggly hair. He was leaning against a wall, and then very gradually he kind of sank down the wall until he was sitting on the floor, the dirty floor. And I noticed this. A few other people noticed it, probably, but nobody did anything except there was one young woman, quite young, like she might have been going to her first job, she might have been in college, and she actually walked over to this man, put her hand on his shoulder, leaned over, and asked if she could help. And nobody else in that entire crowded subway platform paid any attention, but this one young person did. You know, what she probably had someplace to get to. They probably were expecting her to be there on time, but she saw this as being more important. And 
I still think of that because she so inspired me. She inspired me to pay attention to what's needed that I might be able to do, even though I might think I have something more important to do. It was really, really touching. She was a teacher to me. So in in that way, you you didn't act in the moment, but it resonated with you. It changed you in some way. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't act in the moment. And afterwards, I said to myself, why didn't I do that? Was I in so much of a hurry that getting somewhere on time was more important than going to see to somebody who was obviously in need of help? But that, but that young woman did. And, uh, and, and she changed, she changed my trajectory in life to being more aware of when I might step in and help somebody. Right. And, and how we can be just stopped in our tracks, hopefully. I mean, not always because we're so rushing, as you say, all the people I see the platform and the subway station and everybody's just really busy wanting to crowd into the next car and get on and with their life. And we don't stop to hear that person playing the violin. And I remember there was somebody who's very, yeah. very famous violinist that that was playing in a subway station and people would just walk on by. Uh, Joshua and, Bell in Washington in the Metro. Yeah, I love that story. I love that story. So, or you tell a wonderful story. I, I just love the visual of this. This was during the pandemic when uh, the seagulls going past the firehouse. Yeah, that was great. That was the first month or so of the pandemic. And we I was having a meeting with people on Zoom. And all of a sudden, this man who was living in New York City says, oh, my God, wait a minute. So we got up from his chair and he disappeared. And we had no idea what was going on. And then he came back and he said, I can't believe what just happened. A flock of seagulls just flew down 49th Street. And they turned right at the corner and flew past the firehouse. And um, I used to live in New York City, so I could picture this. And he, then he said, all the firemen were, came out to watch. So it was like, I think that chapter is, is let beauty seduce you. Or I mean, I think that was the chapter that it's in. I, I picked really kind of quirky titles for these chapters. Um, that he could have just sat there and he was talking about fundraising. You know, he could have just said to himself, well, I'm I'm here. I'm talking about an important topic. I can't be distracted by seagulls. But he let himself be distracted by seagulls. And then he noticed that the firefighters were also attracted by seagulls flying together down streets that were unusually empty because people weren't out because there was so much really bad covid in the in New York City. And um, and they just took time to get swept away by a bunch of seagulls going down the street in the wrong direction, I might add. <laughs> what that says to me is you talk about standing still for the beauty. And I was talking to our engineer, Lou Judson, just before we started this interview. And Lou does a lot of recording of live music. And we were talking about what the beauty of live music and how after I'm at some sort of concert, I, I want to, oh, I want to hold on to it. So I buy a souvenir CD and I bring it home and then I put it on. And Trebby, the magic isn't there. 
And I think you describe it. You can't bring home a souvenir of beauty. What? Yeah. Tell tell us about that. Yeah. And I so I like I so identify with what you just said. I have done that so many times at concerts. And then you, but I've never quite thought about it in that way. It's like it doesn't have the magic, but it's really true. Um, yeah, I um I was thinking about people who take photographs of wonderful things. Um, and taking photographs of wonderful things is fine, of course. But what I was specifically, I have specifically noticed in several places that I've been to is people will walk up to something that's wonderful. Um, like particularly, I was thinking about Strasbourg Cathedral in, in France and people would walk up and take a picture and move on. It's like they, they wouldn't even look at, they wouldn't even look at this frieze or these statues. They would simply recognize that it was worth looking at and take a picture and move on. And I mean, I think your story about the concert is such a great example because the, looking at a photograph is such a poor substitute for actually standing in front of that that freeze, which I was doing. I mean, I, I spent a couple of days in Strasbourg and I would just stand in front of these beautiful sculptures and look and look and look. And I felt badly for the people who were only taking pictures of them and thinking that they might see them later. It's just, it's just, it's no, it's no comparison. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I, I, this, this has to do because the whole trajectory of what we're talking about is to help us in our grief. I mean, it, it's related. It's related. It, you talk about joy and grief are two sides of a coin. Yes. And I think personally, I think beauty, I think being open to beauty is a lifesaver. I think it's, I think it can help us get through anything in life, whether it's personal grief, worry, fear, um, climate change, political upset. And what I've begun to realize is it's not that we can't always find beauty in this situation. I mean, you can't, for example, look at your, if your home's been destroyed by a wildfire, you can't simply stand there and go, well, where's the beauty here? But the beauty <laughs> might be in, the beauty might come a day later or a week later when you see green shoots pushing up through the char. Or it might be somebody coming by with a generous act. Yes, I, I want you to say more about that in just one moment. But I want to remind our listeners, I'm here with Trevi Johnson. And she is the author of Fierce Consciousness, Surviving the Sorrows of Earth and Self. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Trevi Johnson, and we're talking about beauty. And you just made a statement. Uh, beauty is a life saver. And that's such a powerful statement. And I'd like for you to elaborate more on that. Yes. So as, as I was saying, we can't necessarily always find beauty in the, in the situation itself. You know, like that moment I described with walking out of the hospice. At that moment, there was no beauty in the fact that my husband had just died, my husband of 34 years. Um, but then there were those Katie dids, which were completely unexpected, which brought that, it was like a dart of beauty into my heart and life. So it's not about looking at a bad situation and saying, oh, well, okay, I'm, I, I need to find some beauty in this. It's being open to where the beauty otherwise might be. It's also, it's really important not just to be open to receiving beauty, but to give it and in small ways. And, um, you know, like, for example, when I was in that hospice with my husband before he died, I was very grateful for the attention that the nurses were giving him. They were just so kind. They didn't condescend. And I thanked them for it. You know, I appreciated it in the moment and I thanked them for it. Um, and another story I love was about a, um, I think I told this in Radical Joy for Hard Times. I'm not sure. A family whose neighborhood had burned down near Santa Rosa, California. And they went back up there around Christmas time. I think the fire had been in the fall. They went back up there at Christmas time and they brought a Christmas tree and they put it in their front yard or what had been their front yard. Their home was completely gone and decorated it with battery powered Christmas lights. And that inspired their neighbors to come and do the same thing. I mean, they they made beauty in a hurt place. And newspapers caught on to it and television stations. And it was just, it was just, it was an act of outrageous courage and creativity and community and spontaneity that it was like those Katie dids. It was like saying, we're down and out. We haven't got a home. We don't know where we're going to live next, but damn, we can make beauty. We can go back to our place and we can make beauty. And there is, and and so the, the leap between making Christmas tree decorations at your burned neighborhood and thanking a nurse when you're at, you know, when you're seeing your husband's last hours is a big leap. And yet it's, in my opinion, it's both a way of saying, you know, there are other people in the world. There are other animals in the world. There's life, there are possibilities. And what can I do to put a little beauty into the world, even as I'm receiving beauty? And, and what you're describing in the Christmas tree, that was an audacious act. It was and audacious. A, my community, because I live in Santa Rosa, I'm right here. I live here. And that's that happened right here where I live. Oh. It brought us together as a community. And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of another example of that. And that was in midst of the COVID when we're all sheltering in place and how people got out on their balconies, like at a certain time, like seven o'clock at night, every, every day. And they would bang pots and pans and they would just cheer on all the healthcare and all the workers 
who, you know, giving giving back to them and acknowledgement. And that happened worldwide. And it did, yeah. I think the point of it is this is where when we go back to the very beginning of this interview, we hold our grief and our acknowledgments and the the truth of where we are and what's happening together as a community. And that in itself is assuaging our powerlessness. Yeah, and we know we're not alone. We know we're not alone. And and that's an important act. So if if somebody is audacious enough to put a Christmas tree, what that did, it had it's like putting a pebble in a pond and it's just expanding those those rings of little waves that it makes and it expands out and it it becomes very inclusive we embrace one another we it's an act of community is what i'm trying to say yeah and one act inspires another you know it's people people didn't only go up and look at the christmas tree that the first family had put there they added to it. They put their own Christmas trees. Somebody put a note to Santa Claus on their mailbox on a board telling them where their temporary address was. You know, so it was it 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 filled people with a kind of, I think, uh, joy, a sense that, oh, we're not powerless after all. We've perhaps lost everything. And yet. And yet we can do this kind of fanciful, weird, wild, crazy, creative thing. Exactly, exactly. And so here's where you you talk about uh, we all at this point in our trajectory as a global community, we all need to understand and tune into our own superpower. And maybe it's something just so innate in us that we don't even notice what it is. And so what advice do you have that tuning into our superpower is really important in these times? I had a young friend who introduced this concept to me, uh, and he would go around and ask people what their superpower was. And so I started doing it. And um, I did it a lot when I was on this crazy book tour that I did in March and April. And usually when you ask people what their superpower is, they 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 think for a while and then they want to be very modest about it. And my friend, whose name was Noah Crow, he wanted you to be outrageous with your superpower. So the point I make in the book was, where would where would Wonder Woman be if she only said, I'm pretty good in an emergency, you know, like we have to be bold. We have to be able to say outrageous things about ourselves. And it's, there are things we we're we're just really good at. Uh, Like, you know, I, I connect two people who desperately need to know each other and had no idea of that or something. I mean, that's not mine. I just made it up. Um, And and by knowing that, we kind of assign ourselves a role in life that in in a bigger way than me, we might ordinarily have recognized. We say, okay, this is what I can do. This is how I contribute to life. 
And, um, and, and by making it big, we turn ourselves into a superhero in a sense. Not, not that we're going to go around and expect people to do things for us or punch through walls, but to act in a way that we and we alone are capable of acting. I love that because if we do look at who we are and what is natural to us that we're already doing and then be conscious of it, then we know that is what we can contribute to the betterment of all the life around us. And this also reminds me, I think I wrote this down from your book because I thought it was such a good idea about when we get with people instead of asking them, okay, uh, what is it you do? You know, what is your work in the world? Uh, but to ask them, um, what is it? I'm just thinking in my own women's circle, I know what they do in the world. And if I help go deeper in understanding them and they understanding themselves, if I ask them the question, what do you love about what you do? Yeah. And that's a very different question than what what is it you do? Yeah. How did you come up with that one? I don't remember exactly how I came up with it, but somehow i well i think i i can i i think i might have come up with it when i was um i had a dent in my car when i lived in pennsylvania and i had to take it to a guy to get the dent taken out and while he was working on the car his wife was doing um taking all the parts out of a little volkswagen and i started having a conversation with her and she was not very forthcoming you know she would answer in one or two words and I didn't have anything else to do. And I just, the very fact that she was so sort of terse about it, not forthcoming, made me really want to know why she loved what she did. So I kind of kept asking her these questions in different ways. And she finally said, well, you know, I really love that I can take all the parts out of this little car and put them on a blanket on the grass and you can see everything. And then one at a time, I put them back in. And so I realized that in any conversation with anybody, you know, whether it's a good friend or somebody I've never met or somebody that I assume I have absolutely nothing in common with, if you get them talking about why they love what they do, something opens up, some like a realness, an authenticity, a beauty, uh, a genuineness opens up and it works. I mean, I've never had it not work. Oh, wonderful. I want to thank you so much, Treppy, for being with us today. It's just been marvelous to be with you. I've been speaking with Treppy Johnson. She's the author of Fierce Consciousness, Surviving the Sorrows of Earth and Self. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, trebbyjohnson.com, and she spells her first name, Treby, T-R-E-B, as in boy, T-R-E-B-B-E, johnson.com, trebbyjohnson.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. 
This is program number 3799. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.